Good evening, everybody. And welcome to Saddleback. My name is Rick, and I love Jesus with all my heart. And if he never did anything else for me, I owe him the rest of my life. We have been looking forward to hosting this Desiring God conference for a long, long time. It is our privilege to have the team here, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time because we know who we came to hear, and we also know who we came to honor, Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible says this in Hebrews 13. It says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. That's Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God unto you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, in that one verse, you have all you need to know about leadership. If you're going to be a leader in ministry, you must have a message worth remembering, a lifestyle worth considering, and a faith worth imitating. I didn't say that. God did. Consider your leaders. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God unto you. You must have a message worth remembering. Consider the outcome of their way of life. You must have a lifestyle worth considering. If people can't follow your model, you're not a leader. And imitate their faith. You must have a faith worth imitating. Those three qualities define my friend John Piper. Would you give him a warm saddleback welcome? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I seek your help now for me and for these who are gathered here to listen. It's a great honor to be here. It's amazing to me that these folks would gather together to worship you and to hear your word, and I don't take it for granted. Grant that I would be faithful to your word, that I would be humbly submissive to it, and that I would be, that I would feel the things that are in accord with it, hard things, sad things, happy things, big things, small things. May my heart, our heart together accord with it. And Father, I pray that Christ would be exalted and that people would be set free from bondage and that churches would be strengthened and that mission would be advanced and that families would be stronger, worship would be more intense, prayer more fervent, and the world feel the impact of this moment. I pray that the ripple effect of this little pebble that drops would be breathed on by the Spirit and, and it would blow into waves that would break on centuries from now. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
The reason we do these national, um, I mean regional, conferences once or twice a year, and the reason that the elders gathered around me at 7.30 on Thursday morning and laid their hands on me and sent me off to do this from our church is because we have seen some things in the Bible about God and about the way he relates to people. And they are spectacularly wonderful and weighty. And they have become for us ballast in the bottom of the little boats of our lives. And we have found that these truths are heavy enough that our boats don't tip over as easily when tornadoes go through Alabama or tsunamis hit Japan or wars strike the Middle East or cancer hits spouse or self or children go away and break your heart. The boat is just always being rocked. And what we have found, what I have found, is that there are truths that are so magnificent that if you put them in your boat, they have just the wonderful amount of weight to, to keep the boat from tipping when the wind is really blowing hard. The keel goes down deep and the, and the ballast holds. And that's what I would like for you. I, 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 uh, having been given so much joy in seeing so much in the Bible, it completes my joy to bring it and tell it to you. And you can hear a quote from the Bible there, can't you? That's 1 John 1, 4. I write these things to you so that our joy might be complete. So that's why I'm here. I want to be happy. (laughs) And my happiness goes up if I can be an instrument in God's hands to get some of my treasuring of God and the ballast that it is for me into, into you. Um, now, if it's true that, that I find my joy increased by being here, I, I owe some people some thanks because you, you're here and if this place were empty, I wouldn't get the same joy out of speaking this message to empty chairs as, as I do in having it land on you and, and by God's grace perhaps awaken some affections in you for God that might have been dormant or dead. So I thank you for coming. Thank you. I, I do not take it for granted. And, and I thank uh, Rick Warren, if you're watching back there, Rick, thank you for having us and your whole team for helping us. I know that it's an inconvenience to have a conference on Saturday when this place has to be ready to go Sunday morning. So it's really kind of you to, to have us here. And so thank you to the whole Saddleback crowd and, and to you in particular for being here. Now, I've already created a moral problem by what I've said. Maybe you've picked it up. Um, And in large measure, the moral problem, the ethical issue that has come up already in my words, is, is the origin of the book, Desiring God, which is what this conference is supposed to be about. 
We're supposed to, the book has been in existence now for 25 years and it came into existence much earlier than that in my head. And the book was born out of wrestling with the moral issue that I've already created by saying I came here to be happy. And I covered my backside with that quote by quoting the Bible. It's safe to quote the Bible. (laughs) If you say something off the wall controversial, like these things I have written to you that my joy may be full. Or this trip I make to California that my joy may be full. What a self-gratifying jerk. <laughs> what, what's with you? Do you care about these people? What about the glory of God, for goodness sakes? So, 1968, just up the road in Pasadena, I was madly in love with Noel and engaged to be married December of that year in my first semester at Fuller and tormented week in and week out by the problem of motivation. I want to marry this woman. I want, I want, I want to marry this woman. I want that. Well, Paul said some important things in 1 Corinthians 7 about the value of singleness. Devotion to Jesus. Unencumbered. But I want her. And he talks about the glory of God. And he talks about living for others like her maybe or... Should I? I, w- I want to minister. I want to be useful. I want, I want, I want. I'm just, my, my heart in 1968 and every year is a desire factory. I can't stop wanting. It seems like I'm just made. Human beings are made to want, long, desire, ache, yearn. Motive is, was continually an issue. Like, am I doing this for right reasons? I want to I wanna marry this woman. Wouldn't it be nice if we were older? <laughs> then we wouldn't have to wait so long. Just, I mean, the Beach Boys, you know the Beach Boys, right? Just, wouldn't it be nice to live together? Yes! <laughs> so, um, we did get married. That was 42 years ago. But to, to this day, there's hardly a day goes by in the ministry where you have so much freedom to do what you feel like you should do and nobody's telling you what to do I'm not struggling with motivation questions and wrestlings and I have 
come to some pretty deep convictions from the Bible about the nature of motivation and the apparent tension in our hearts between living for the glory of God and living for my want, I want, I want, my desires that as I was growing up always felt in such tension. So that's where the book came from. It came from the struggles of trying to figure out what do my desires for happiness have to do with God's passion for his glory? So let me tell you where we're going in the two one hour or so sessions that we have together. I've got five steps in the, and I don't know how they're going to shake out. I don't know where we're going to stop tonight. I've just got five things I want to say and, and it may take, I mean, we may do three or four tonight. We'll see. So here, here's the five Here's where we're going. This is the roadmap. Number one, we're going to start with God and what motivates him. The most fundamental question for my motivation is God. How my wants relate to his wants. God is God. I'm not God. I don't tell God anything about what he should do to run the world. He tells me what I should do to fit in to his running of the world. He's absolute. I'm contingent. He's totally self-sufficient. I'm dependent. And so I've got to totally check in with God and fit in with God or perish. There's no negotiation here. And so we start with, with God. What are you up to in your absolute being, in creating the universe, and me in particular, and, and these folks here. That's, that's the first thing. What is God's motivation? And we're going to find that God is massively into being God. He, is, he exists to be God. There's nobody he gives an account to. He's not for anybody but himself, ultimately. And he means to do everything he does to uphold and display the infinite value of his glory. That's what we're going to find in point number one. Point number two. He bids you, all of you, to join him in that goal that he be glorified. Number three, all these are going to have Bible put under them because what I say doesn't matter at all. What God says matters infinitely. Number three, the most important discovery in this whole process for me, and I made it in 1968, 69, and 70 as I wrestled with these things just up the road, is that God is most glorified in me when I'm most satisfied in him. That's the, the banner that flies over my life, flies over the church, flies over my marriage, flies over my parenting, flies over Desiring God Ministries. I hope it'll fly over my grave. God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. And therein lay massive solutions to huge problems in my life and set a course for me that has never altered 
I am so thankful at age 65 that at age 25, some things got absolutely settled. It is amazing to me that 30 years of sermons are on the web, and I hardly want to change anything in them. That's amazing. I mean, I would change some things. (laughs) Not many. And nothing fundamental. God was so good to me. He just shook me up so deeply and took me so... He just tore me apart and put me back together in those three years in such a way that I've never had to be broken up and put back together again. Just a lot of refining, a lot of growth, a lot of additions, a lot of discoveries, but the, the core was there. And that statement, God is most glorified in me when I'm most satisfied, that's right at the core because of what, what it solves and the course that it put me on. So that's number three, and we've got to show where that comes from in the Bible. Number four is the astonishing implication of, of those three steps. Namely, if that's right, if that's right, then you and I should devote our lives 24-7 with all of our might for the rest of our lives to being happy in God. Because he's most glorified in us when we're most satisfied. So it becomes a a mandate and the whole of sanctification, the whole of world evangelization becomes maximize your joy if it gets your throat slipped. It is the most costly way to live. We don't send out missionaries from Bethlehem for any other ultimate reason than to maximize their joy in seeing people maximize their joy in God. And all of them know that it could cost them their lives. we got people in Syria right now. It's just a horrible place to be right now. They're not coming home. They're ready if they have to, but they want to be there. Why? Because... Love is like a high pressure zone of joy that just wants to expand to fill all these gaps of joylessness in lost people's lives. They're going to go into eternal joylessness. And if you've got a high-pressure zone of, of joy in you, when a high-pressure zone meets a low-pressure zone, what weather system is caused? Wind. What's it called morally? Love. Missions. So this is huge. This, this uh, four-step... Devote yourself to maximizing your joy in God by expanding it into the lives of other people. That's number four. And number five, the last one is this vertical satisfaction in God is the only path to radical sacrificial love for other people. Okay, that's... That's where we're heading. Let's take them one at a time and put as much Bible under, under them as we have time for and see as, how far we can get tonight. Number one, 
what is the aim of God in all that he does? Because I've just got to get in line with that. Because if I decide this is what I'm going to do, this is what my motives are going to be, without reference to him, I could just crash and burn in this life. And I'll definitely crash and burn in the next if I don't, if I don't get in sync with the maker of the universe. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 3. Verses 23 to 26. I have four steps under, under point one to try to show you from the Bible that God does absolutely everything he does to uphold and display the infinite worth of his glory. That's the thesis. Now we need to argue for it from Bible. Don't believe it because I said it or anybody says it. Believe it if you see it. If you don't see it, don't believe it. Okay, just... The Bible is the only authority that matters when it comes to these things that you can't learn any other way. So here we are, Romans 3.23. Very, very familiar passage, but let's unpack it for this question. What's driving God in the cross? Here, not everywhere, here. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now notice the link, first of all, between sin and glory. It's so crucial to get this. We'll come back to it in a minute. All have sinned and fall short or literally lack or without the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward. So he comes and he's coming from heaven and he's being put forward toward the cross, put forward as a propitiation. I'm reading from the ESV. I like that word. Keep that word. Propitiation. It means uh, appeasing the wrath of God by getting it onto him and getting it away from me so that God is no longer angry at me, just like we sang a minute ago. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. No injustice in the universe at all because his wrath is really poured out on my sin, but not on me. This is the wonder of the cross. So here we're watching it take place. Put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And here it comes. This was to show God's righteousness. Oh. So Christ took on God's wrath by dying in his blood to show God's righteousness. Well, why did God's righteousness need to be shown? And the next phrase begins with because. So now we know why. Here it comes. Because in his divine forbearance, patience, he passed over former sins. Okay. The rest of it's repetition. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. So he says it again. He says it two times. In the cross, Christ is put forward to die for sins and appease the, righteous, the wrath of God because he wanted to show God's righteousness so that he might be just righteous and the one who is declared righteous or justified through faith in Jesus. Now, just think it through. Sin, according to verse 23 is a lacking or falling short of the glory of God. What does that mean? I take my cue from chapter 1, verse 23, as the best exposition of 323. Easy to remember it that way. Chapter 1, verse 23 says, uh, they became wise in their own thinking 
I mean, they became fools in their own thinking, exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images. Now, when you exchange something, you lose it. Like, I'm giving you God's glory, you give me an image. They exchanged the glory of God. They were given the glory of God to enjoy, to satisfy their souls. That's why we were made in his image. That's why God declares his glory in the world and demonstrates his glory all over the place. The heavens are telling the glory of God. Human beings in their fallenness exchange it. They look at it and they say, not interested. No, thank you. I like this computer or I like this food or I like this wife or I like this job or I like this success. I like this fame. I like preaching. And they exchange God for that. And then it becomes an idol. That's what sin is. Sin is any feeling or thought or deed that flows from a loss of God as your supreme treasure. Anything. Building a hospital for the poor would be sin. If it's not done with God as your supreme treasure. If the poor have become your supreme treasure, you're an idolater. I don't care how much good you do. So sin can be good things and bad things. Anything is sin that is flowing from a heart that is not valuing God supremely. So when it says all have sin and fall short of. Lack, hustereo in Greek, lack the glory of God. It means they've exchanged it, they sold it. They prefer other things. That's what sin is. Anything you do flowing from a heart that doesn't treasure Christ above all is sin. Now, why does he demonstrate his righteousness in giving Christ to die? Answer, because in his divine forbearance, he passed over this kind of junk that we just described. What does it look like if God is constantly in the Old Testament passing over glory trampling behavior? If sin is a, is a, belittling of the glory of God by preferring anything in the world to the glory of God, what does it mean to God when he just passes over it? Like, we're going to pass over it. Here's David. He, he commits adultery with Bathsheba. He kills Elias, and then he kills her husband. And Nathan comes to him and says, you're the man. And he breaks. And the next thing out of Nathan's mouth is, the Lord has taken away your sin. Now, if I were Bathsheba's dad, I'd go ballistic. What? You can't just do that. This guy's a, a murderer and a rapist, and you're just going to say, the Lord has taken away your iniquity. Hop back on the throne. <laughs> Kill him. He's wicked. And God just, just doesn't kill him calls him a man after his own heart. I mean, something's got to give. Something's got to give, and what gave is Jesus. So Romans 3, 
25 and 26 is God's vindication of that outrageous divine behavior. You know, most of the people in the world don't lose sleep over how unrighteous God is in forgiving their sins. Most people get in God's face if anything bad happens to them. They don't wake up every morning thinking, how can you be a just God and treat me so well as to cause me to live in Southern California where it doesn't rain? (laughs) Or snow in April at the first Twins ball game? How can you be so good to me? What kind of a crazy, unrighteous, wicked God are you to just let all my wickedness go? Who, Who loses sleep over that? Paul did, that's who, which is why he had to write this. What God did, because the biggest problem in the universe for God is how to save sinners without being unrighteous, which means the righteousness of God is what? You're with me? If you're tracking with me, you might be able to finish that sentence. I'll give you a final exam here. Just what is the righteousness of God if the righteousness of God had to be demonstrated by vindicating the value of the glory of God which had been trampled through the killing of the Son of God for the glory of God? What does righteousness mean? Now, and here's my, here's my definition. I'm not, I hope I'm not bringing this definition to this from some theological dictionary that I looked up. I'm just kind of pulling it. Come on, I want, the, I want the meaning right here in this text. Come on, I want to know what you are, righteousness. And here's, here's, my, here's my answer to that. The righteousness of God is his unwavering commitment to uphold the value of his glory. His unwavering commitment to uphold the value of his glory. Now, let me come at it another way. Suppose you're God, which means there is no book except what you wrote to tell you what's right. How do you decide what's right if you're God? We decide what's right by asking somebody else. Like, tell me what's right. I can't create right. I have to be told right. Well, who does God ask? Nobody. Well, then what's right for God? That's a huge question. And, and here's, I think, the answer. What is right for God is whatever accords with his value. God has nothing else to consult except himself. And he is infinitely valuable. Infinitely glorious, infinitely holy. So righteous activity would be activity that conforms with, accords with that value. Passing over God belittling sins does not conform to that value. It makes him look what? Unrighteous. Which is why the cross had to happen to vindicate the righteousness of God. Because if you were just standing back with no cross in this universe and all the mercy that was shown to the likes of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, these unbelievable rascals, and all the prophets and David, he's just mercy, mercy, mercy. And you say, where's the justice in the universe? And there wouldn't be any. And now, the cross shows how he can pass over all that stuff. 
he passed over because it was all going to be dumped on Jesus. That's how. He didn't sweep sin under the rug of the universe. He swept it up and then dumped it on his son for you. Every morning when the sun rises on your sinful head, you should say, I'm not in hell. It's a good day. <laughs> and if you, if you believe what I believe, though you laugh, that would be true. It's a good day. I'm not in hell. Where I belong. I tweeted the other day. <laughs> I tweeted... If you believe you only deserve punishment, you should never get in God's face about anything. Goodness gracious, the comments. I don't usually read comments, but this is a long list. And people didn't like that. Well, that's pretty much near the heart of what I believe. So that's 1.1. Okay, that's first of four supports for number one. Number one is, what's God's motive? God's motive is to do everything to uphold and display the infinite value of his glory. And I'm basing it first and foremost on the cross. Okay? So nobody, nobody go away saying, the cross was not central in this seminar. It's front and center. Okay? Massively central. The universe exists for the display of the glory of the grace of God, supremely manifest in the death of the Son in so many ways, and this is one of them. Now, here's the second support, and I think I'll pass over this quickly. This is taking longer than I thought because I'm enjoying it so much. <laughs> there are a whole series of texts that simply say, God, through history, has done every step of redemption for his glory. It just says it. So I'll just read you a few of them. Uh, predestination is one. He predestined us, this is Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us to adoption through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Why did he predestine people to be saved? Un so that they would praise the glory of his grace. That's why. Number two. Why did he create people? Isaiah 43, 6. Bring my sons from afar. My daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name. Whom I created for my glory. He created you for his glory. That's why you're made. You're not left to wonder, well, I'm on the planet. You're on the planet to make God look good. Really. To make Christ look magnificent. I just scheduled a tweet this afternoon. I'm going to tweet. I try to pack a megaton of theology into these little things. And, and I, I said, the great challenge of life is to use every treasured thing to show that God is treasured more. Well, if you get that, if you get that, I mean, that means you'll eat pizza or not such that it will look to the world like you value God more. What? How do you do that? Eat less. 
like just halfway through the last piece, stop. <laughs> Try it sometime. And call it a little fast. <laughs> or something. The principle is clear. If, if we live like the rest of the world, I mean, really, come on. If we have the same cars, the same houses, the same everything, and enjoy them in the same way, you can call that prosperity gospel, but it's not going to make any, anybody value Jesus for Jesus. They'll value Jesus as a dispenser. I hate the prosperity gospel. Because it, it turns Jesus into a, a broker. We're, we're going to attract people to Jesus because Jesus gives stuff. Love stuff. Come to Jesus. So the, the huge challenge of life is what does it mean to be created for his glory? To so live 24-7, minute by minute, in such a way that people would see that Jesus is more valuable in your life than anything. Um, there's so many. I could, I could talk about the atonement, sanctification. Let's just jump to consummation. The last, the last thing that's going to happen on his, in, in this normal history, 2 Thessalonians, Thessalonians 1.9. These will pay, unbelievers, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes. Now listen. When he comes to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Why is he coming? To be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at. He does everything to be glorified. He does everything to be, to be marveled at. So um, my conclusion of, of my first point is from the Bible, especially the cross, I conclude that the very righteousness of God consists in his unwavering commitment to do everything to uphold and display the infinite worth or value of his glory. That's point one in the seminar. And it's simply massively important. This massive. Starting with God is so crucial. Now here's, we'll go to number two. Therefore, he bids you and me to join him in this goal of glorifying himself. And you know the text that I would use for this. This is a short one because it's, it's so obvious. My dad, when I was growing up, probably in letters to me and in devotions, gave me 1 Corinthians 10.31 more than he gave any other verse probably. Therefore, Johnny, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So now that's a command. That's, that's like God saying, that's the way I live. I want you to live that way too. Join me in my passion for my glory. I live for my glory. You should live for my glory. I live to display and uphold my glory. You live to display and uphold my glory. I live to make my perfections shine in the universe. You live to make my perfections shine in the universe. Or... 
the text that we quote in our church most often in our little prayer room back there, like that, that room back there before we walk out here, we, we would be bowed in prayer. And, and the text that gets quoted most often by me and others just before we walk up to engage the, the devil and sin and the world in spiritual warfare and worship is 1 Peter 4.11, which goes like this. Let him who serves... Serve in the strength that God supplies so that in everything God may get the glory through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the dominion forever. Amen. So serve in the strength that God supplies so that in everything God is glorified. God gets the glory. The giver gets the glory. So don't you, don't you be the giver You be the receiver. You're bankrupt. God is rich. You're thirsty. He's water. You're hungry. He's bread. You're helpless. He's helper. You're moving into this ministry saying, help, help, help. God's coming. He's arriving. And when he arrives and empowers and does the work, he gets the glory. And that's his purpose. Join me in this. Do ministry in such a dependent way that I'm constantly getting the glory. Or Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father. So join me in this. Find a way, and I'm going to come back to this tomorrow, find a way to do good deeds so that God gets praised, not your philanthropy. Ha, 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 how do I do that? If people admire me for my good deeds, what? I, what? They're supposed to admire you. What, what's the key? There is a key in the context. You can study that tonight in verses 11 to 16 of Matthew 5 and see what, what you think the answer to that is. But clearly, he says, join me in this. I want, I want to get glory for me by your good works. You do the good works, I get the glory. So that's number two. Now we've done two of the five. God intends to be God by upholding and displaying the value of his glory in all that he does. And number two, he calls you and me to join him in that. And that's why we live You're on the planet to make God look good. That's what glorify means. Glorify doesn't mean increase his glory. It means show his glory. And make it look glorious to people. Now, number three. The great discovery. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So you can see where, where it's all flowing. God is devoted to upholding and displaying his glory. He calls me to do that with him. And now I discover the amazing breakthrough that the tension I'm feeling between I want this woman this ministry, this happiness, and I want you to be honored and glorified. Why did it take me 22 years? Why wasn't I listening? I don't know. But now, 
you can see what's happening. God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. And they're one. What happened to the tension? That's, I've been spending the last 40 years trying to f- live this and figure this out. I'm, I'm just a rotten liver of this. Rotten. I was just walk, pacing in my hotel room over at the Hampton Inn today, just pacing back and forth saying, I'm going to stand in front of 1,500 people tonight, and I'm just such a rotten demonstrator of what I'm saying. And I want to say that here so that you don't get the notion that any of your teachers is Jesus. That any of your teachers measures up to his teaching. Nobody. Rick Warren, John Piper, pick your favorite guy. None of us measures up to what we preach. We're always preaching ahead of ourselves. We're always preaching above ourselves. And if we're honest, we should just be confessing that crazy so our wives don't have to say it. Maybe someday I'll be able to join you in laughter. (laughs) Just so painful to be such a failure. People look at me, you know, I'm the joy guy. (laughs) You should read a letter I got from one of my elders the other day. David, back there. John's read it. He's over there. Just saying, John, you've helped thousands of people get a breakthrough, and you haven't found it. That's one of my elders talking. And I said, okay, that's right. Which, which simply means, I mean, there's no surprise to me. The book is called Desiring God, Not Having Arrived at Joy in God. You got that? Then the second book is called How to Fight for Joy When I Don't Desire God. Like how often is that? Like Daily? Just please know that what I'm teaching is war. It's war. It's not like finished sanctification. Here, have some sanctification. (laughs) I'm, I'm calling you into the right kind of war. I'm just, if I could reorient where you put your energies. Like, what are you going to fight for when you get up in the morning? I'll tell you what to fight for. Joy! Fight like heaven for it. Because Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1.24, not that we lord it over your faith, but we are workers together for your joy. Workers, workers, workers. What are pastors? Workers for joy. First theirs and then the people. This is labor. We're constantly fighting the devil and the flesh that are trying to say, be happy in me, be happy in me. It's just war all day long. I'm not going to be happy in you. I'm happy in God. Constantly reorienting our affections on our treasure. And the devil is just constantly clawing at us. And, and our sins are clawing at us to say, no, 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 no. Just forget that God stuff. Here's where real happiness is to be found. It's relentless war. Why did Paul come to the end of his life and say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. That's the last thing out of his mouth. 
Because it's war to the end, that's why. It's running to the end, it's fighting to the end, it's keeping and holding on to the end. So, a lot of young people in this room, sorry. (laughs) Sorry, marriage is war against the devil, not her. (laughs) Though the devil would have you believe the opposite. Where am I? (laughs) Oh, number three, the great discovery. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And it, it solves huge problems, which we'll get to in a minute, that people have all over the place with God's God centeredness, and it sets a course for life. God's self exaltation is going to become the highest act of love. And the duty to pursue his glory is going to become a quest for joy. So, where do I get this truth? And I've got three or four supports for it, so let's go at it. This is sub point one under number three. Defending God is most glorified in you when you're most satisfied in him from the Bible. I'm going to start with an abstruse one. Sorry, but there are a few, a few weirdos here who enjoy this kind of stuff, who really, really like complex, deep theological rumination. So you get four or five minutes here. Um, I, I don't think it's been that complex so far, but this is. The Trinity. The nature of the Trinity is a reason for why God has designed us such that He is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. So how do I? Here is the most important paragraph I have ever read on the nature of the Trinity. And it comes from Jonathan Edwards. I just want to read it to you. This I suppose to be that blessed Trinity that we read of in Holy Scriptures. The Father is the deity subsisting in the prime unoriginated and most absolute manner or the deity in its direct existence. The Son is the deity generated by God's understanding or having an idea of himself and subsisting in that idea. The Holy Spirit is the deity subsisting in act or the divine essence flowing out and breathes forth in God's infinite love to and delight in himself. And I believe that the whole divine essence flowing out and breathes forth in God's infinite love to and delight in himself is the Holy Spirit. I believe that the whole divine essence does truly and distinctly subsist in both in the divine idea and divine love and that each of them are properly distinct persons. Let me put that in my own words. They are three persons, one divine essence. We are monotheists. It's so hard for Muslims to grasp and you got to appreciate the difficulty. 
one divine essence. The Father has an image of himself, and he's always had it. So when we talk about the Son being begotten or generated, we don't mean at a point in time. It's always, he's always been knowing, the Father has always known himself. And this knowledge of himself is so full of all that he is that this self-known stands forth as a fully distinct person with one essence. I'm talking over my head here. I'm getting helped by it. You'll see why in a minute. The, the, the energy and the love that flows back and forth between the Father and the Son, each having all the divine perfections in them, flowing back and forth, the infinite energy and love, the intensity of that divine love that flows back and forth, carries in, in him all that God is and stands forth as a third person. The Spirit. (laughs) So, that means at the heart of God's being is God knowing and God enjoying. God having an idea of himself that is so full it is himself and God so fully delighting in and loving himself that that delight is himself. Now, when he created human beings in his own image, he created our souls with two main capacities. The capacity to know and the capacity to feel. And you may say, what about will? In Edward's understanding and mine, the capacity to will and feel are the same because the affections are the lively actings of the will. They're on a continuum. So I don't have, I don't have a three-faculty psychology. I have a two-faculty psychology. You see, this is... Which means that when it comes to God being glorified, that is the whole fullness of God being reflected for who he is, what would that involve? Now I'll read you the most important paragraph I ever read in helping me come to the conviction God is most glorified in me when I'm most satisfied in him. Here here it is. This is Edwards again. Um, God glorifies himself toward the creatures in two ways. One, by appearing to their understanding. Two, by communicating himself to their hearts and in their rejoicing and delighting in and enjoying the manifestations which he makes of himself. Here's the key sentence. God is glorified not only by his glories being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. All I did was make that rhyme. That's exactly what I'm saying. God is most glorified in me when I'm most satisfied in him. I'll read you his sentence now. God is glorified not only by his glory being seen with the eyes of the mind and rightly known, but by its being rejoiced in. He's glorified by being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, 
God is more glorified than if they only see it, which means why God gets more glory from from engaged, passionate Christians than from doctrinally correct, dead Christians. Because right doctrine glorifies one aspect of God and right affections glorify other aspects of God and he's constantly summoning us, come on, get this together, Piper, Saddleback, Bethlehem, Christians, don't become emotionalistic or intellectualistic. Get it together. Be a thinker and a feeler. Because God gave you a soul like his own being. And he means to be passionately loved and precisely known. And his truth gets glorified this way and his value gets glorified this way. So he is most glorified when all that knowledge that we grew up with and are learning feeds a soul's satisfaction in him. So there's reflections on the Trinity. That's argument number, number one. Here's argument number two. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, verses uh, 20 to 23. Philippians 1, 20. This is way more obvious. And I would, I would not blame you for kind of suspending judgment on that last little peroration there. Whatever that word means. I read it somewhere. Philippians chapter 1, verse 20. This is the text I preached on my first Sunday at Bethlehem. Or was it my word? My candidating sermon. Can't remember. Way back at the beginning. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored or magnified in my body. So Paul is saying, my eager expectation is for Christ to be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Now pause right there. That's what we're after. We are after, how can I most magnify Jesus? Put a magnifying glass to him or a telescope, (laughs) better. (laughs) One of you spoke to me today about that microscope telescope analogy that I used we should be telescopes not microscopes microscopes make little things look bigger than they are you can't do that for God but that's the telescopes microscopes telescopes put their eye to a thing that looks teeny weeny it's not teeny weeny that's a star it's 10 million times bigger than you and this planet and this solar system it's huge it looks little put your telescope to it so the world can see that's God analogy that's God. This is an analogy. So we, we should figure out how we can do what Paul says he is passionate to do. Namely, I want Christ to be magnified in my body. By life, I want it to work that way when I'm alive. And as I'm dying, whether in a coliseum or in a jail cell or wherever, I want my death to make him look really good. That's what he's saying. Now, he explains in the next verse. This is so crucial. I mean, this was just massively important for me exegetically. You know, I don't want this Trinitarian reflection stuff that could be way out in left field if, if it's wrong. I don't think it's wrong, but it's just tough. I want clarity. I want textual. Give me some words to hold on to. Now, here it is. For, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
That's Paul's explanation of how he can die to make Jesus look magnificent. If death is for me gain, Christ will be magnified in my dying. Oh, oh, wait a minute. Why would it be gain, Paul? Verse 23, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart, that's die, and be with Christ. That's why it's gain. Okay, all right. So you're saying your passion and desire is for Christ to be magnified through your death. Yes. Life too, but let's just deal with death through your death. And then you're saying for to me to die is gain because I get more of Jesus that way. Yes. So what you're really saying is that at the point of your death, when you are about to lose everything that this world offers you now, everything. For me, it would be like wife, 12 grandchildren, ministry, speaking to you, um, everything. You're lying there, you've got an hour left to live, and you're thinking, I'm losing everything on the planet. And all I get is Jesus. Gain! If you can say that, if you can say and mean it from your heart, all the nurses around you will say, for this man, Jesus is magnificent. And they might even, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, say, Jesus is magnificent to me. Because I've just watched it. I've watched Jesus become more thrilling, more satisfying than anything this man's going to leave behind. Which I translate, Christ is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him at the moment of my death when I'm losing everything but him. That's just crystal clear to me now that that's what this text is saying and that's the the clearest biblical warrant for saying, you want to magnify Jesus? Treasure him above everything on the planet so that when it's totally taken away from you, you call it gain. What What an amazing way to die. What an amazing way to die. So that's argument number two for point number three. We lost. God is most glorified in me when I'm most satisfied in him is point number three. And the first argument was from the Trinity and the second argument was from Philippians 1.20. And the third, and we'll probably have to end with this one and pick it up tomorrow, is the precious discovery of C.S. Lewis that helped me so much and this will take me maybe five or six minutes to finish off with so sit sit tight I'm, I'm going to Lewis is especially important here for this reason Lewis at age 29 was still a skeptic uh, not a believer and one of the huge stumbling blocks for Lewis was when he read the Bible especially the Psalms he said that God's constant command to us to praise him, which I spent the first half hour defending, sounded to him like an old woman needing compliments. That's what he said. 
This God of yours who's saying, praise me, praise me, praise me, praise me, praise me, praise me, all over the Psalms? Sound like an old woman who needs compliments. And he couldn't go there. He said, I don't, I don't feel like worshiping a God like that at all. Now I have here, let me see if I have one, two, three, okay, three, four. Like I have four things from newspapers and magazines to show that's a very common stumbling block. So here is an article from the London Financial Times by Michael Prouse who says, Worship is an aspect of religion that I've always found difficult to understand. Suppose we postulate an omniscient, omnipotent God who decided to create something other than himself. We should be, why should he, he um, ex- accept, ac- expect us to worship him? We didn't ask to be created. Our lives are often troubled. We know that human tyrants are puffed up with pride and crave adulation and homage. But a morally perfect God would surely have no character defects. So why are all these people on their knees every Sunday? This guy's stumbling big time over God's God-centeredness. God demanding worship. Sound like a tyrant who needs adulation. A weakling who's got to be praised or he can't sleep at night. There's one. Here's... uh, Eric Reese wrote a book called The American Gospel. He was interviewed on NPR by Terry Gross a couple of years ago, 2009. And uh, she was really surprised that he said in his book that, uh, who is this egomaniac Jesus who's speaking these words? And he was referring to Matthew 10, 34 to 39, where it says, whoever loves mother or father more than me is not worthy of me. So Eric Reese not a believer, reads these words of Jesus, whoever loves mother or father more than me is not worthy of me. And he says, this is what he said. She says, you want to expand on that? Well, he said, quote, it just struck me, who is this person speaking 2,000 years ago, a complete historical stranger, saying that we should love him, who really can't even emotionally love, more than we should love our own fathers and sons. It just seemed like an incredibly egomaniacal kind of claim to make. So there he is again. Now he's stumbling over Jesus' self-exaltation. So Prowse is stumbling over God's self-exaltation. And Reese is stumbling over uh, Jesus' self-exaltation. And now here's Brad Pitt. <laughs> Actor, producer, being interviewed in Parade in the magazine, the Sunday paper magazine. And he said, grew up in a conservative Christian home, going away. He said, I didn't understand this idea of a God who says, you have to acknowledge me. You have to say that I'm the best. And then I'll give you eternal happiness. If you won't, then you don't get it. It seemed to me ego. I can't see God operating from ego. So it made no sense to me. And I I wonder, I've asked myself... Does it, does it not make sense to anybody except Christians? I mean, can, can Christians, you know, one of, the, one of the things that Rick Warren is known for, and self-consciously so, is that he intends to know his theology well and then put the cookie on the lowest shelf. He explicitly and methodologically is always translating. He says this over and over again. He wants to preach theology without theological terms. And so he cares about this more than anybody, namely, can you really get a common ground with the world when you're trying to convince the world that God is God-centered? 
Now, this is an advertisement from Nature, Nature Valley Granola Bars. And this is a cartoon from Arlo and Janice. And I take these two to be symptomatic of our culture. And I simply bring them out to say, if you care like he does and I do about communicating truths that seem so countercultural and counterintuitive to people so that they might somehow get it, this helps. Listen to this. This is a picture of Yellowstone Park. And there's a big mountain, very thin mountain. And there's two little people standing at the top. One of them's got his arms stretched out like this with ropes. He's just climbed this peak. And clearly he's looking over a vast terrain from a place where my knees would just melt. And at the top, selling granola bars. You got you to ask what's going on in this room, this advertising consultation. It says, you never felt more alive you never felt more insignificant. What are they marketing to? <laughs> they know what they're doing. They do. They're, 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 I mean, do people love to feel insignificant? They do in the right settings, like on the edge of the Grand Canyon. I mean, why do people go to the Grand Canyon? To feel big? <laughs> you feel vulnerable. You feel small. Your knees wobble. Your tummy feels funny. If you walk out on that crazy glass thing, you... you, you why do people do that? It's because they're made in the image of God with this massive longing for Him to be big and for them to be little. Our biggest joys don't come from being big. They come from knowing big. We're made to know big, love big, and God's biggest. We're made for God. The world knows it deep, deep down. They know they're not made for what they're getting. And there are ways to help them. Like you can do this on an airplane. Like, you get that? <laughs> and here's Arlo and Janice, you know, the old couple. And I love them because I'm old and like to do this with my wife. So here they are walking in the snow. Could be Minnesota. And Arlo says to Janice, it's so quiet. She says, yes. They're standing out in the snow. And he says, hey, hey. Then they're just standing there in the dark. Now they're walking away together. And he says, ever notice the best moments make you feel insignificant? C.S. Lewis made the discovery that when God calls us constantly to praise his majesty, he's not acting like an egomaniac or megalomaniac. He's beckoning us to complete our joy. And I'll read you the key quote and we'll be finished for, for the evening. Oh, this quote was a rescue for me. It was such a rescue. I hope it is for you. But the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. 
I thought of it in terms of compliment or approval or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows in praise. Unless shyness or the fear of boring others is brought in to check it, the world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians and scholars. (coughs) I had not noticed how the humblest And at the same time, the most balanced and capacious minds praise most, while the cranks and the misfits and the malcontents praised least. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge others to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us, as regards the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, indeed what we can't help doing about everything else we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. And it was over. That was 1970. It was just over. My battle was over between figuring out how can I pursue the praise of God and how can I be happy. It was just over. Because now I heard all the commands of the Bible. Praise me, honor me, glorify me, esteem me. As finish your joy. Complete your joy. Bring it to consummation. I'm for you. I want you to be happy in me. And your happiness in me reaches its consummation when you praise me and praise me forever. So, C.S. Lewis Third argument for the main discovery, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Which leaves us now two things to do tomorrow. One, this will be step four, does that really biblically, not just logically, but expositionally, does that really lead to the mandate to live for your joy? 24-7, no exceptions. Does it really? And secondly, could a life devoted to pursuing your joy all the time be a loving life when the Bible says love seeks not its own? That's tomorrow.